Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, today's lunchtime lecture for the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons. Those of you who regularly attend these lectures will know that uh, Dr. Sam Alberti, our former director, always starts with the words, hello, my name is Sam and I work here. Well, I'm sad to say he no longer works here, so hello, my name is Hayley and I work here. Uh, so for today's lunchtime lecture, I'm very pleased to welcome Alison Duke, Sorry. <laughs> Alison Duke, uh, Collections Manager at the Foundling Museum, a position she has held for the past 12 years. She was previously at the Tate, and if you Google Alison Duke Foundling Museum, one of the things you do find is she's all over the oral history project, Foundling Voices, which interviewed over 90 people whose lives were associated with the history of the Foundling Hospital. A very fascinating piece of work, and definitely worth looking up. Uh, you might be asking what the connection is between the Foundling Hospital and this particular institution. Well, I'm sure that this will become more clear during the afternoon. But one of the things that we do have in common is we form part of a group called Museum Mile. Uh, Thirteen small museums, some, some very large in fact, and some quite small museums and collections within around roughly a mile radius of each other. And we've put those maps on the chair. So not only can you find the Foundling Museum, but you can also find the other museums in that grouping. So without more ado, I shall pass over to Alison. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hayley, and um, thank you all for coming today, and it's been nice to be invited to come here. Um, as you've heard, I'm Alison Duke, the Collections Manager at the Foundling Museum. I'm sure many of you have visited the museum, but for those of you who haven't, we are a short walk away in Brunswick Square. Um, the museum tells the story of the Foundling Hospital, which was the first sort of home for abandoned children in this country. And um, the slide that I'm showing here is um, a 1756 print by Benjamin Cole. And the building stood in the part of Bloomsbury in what is now Coram's Fields, and it was surrounded by the Foundling Hospital Estate, which was 56 acres of land. So our story starts at the beginning of the 18th century in London, and it was at that time a city that was a centre for trade and industry, and at the heart of the beginning of a growing urbanisation of the country, and this was largely fuelled by rural migration. It was also a city of disease, pollution and poverty, and those rural migrants who, away from their communities and support networks, they could easily fall into destitution and crime if they failed to make a success of life in the city. And this particular slide may well be familiar to you. It's William Hogarth's Gin Lane, and it's his take on sort of 18th century London, and in particular highlighting the problems that the gin craze had caused. Um, so this is a painting of Thomas Coram, and he is the founder of the hospital. Um, Thomas Coram was not a particularly wealthy or influential man. He was born in Lyme Regis, and his mother died at an early age, at which point he was sent to sea, and he eventually made a trade of being a shipbuilder and spent much of his working life in the then American colonies, um, just outside of Boston, in a small community called Thornton. Um, he married an American woman, and after having made a reasonable success of his time in America, came back to London to semi-retirement. And as he walked around London, he came across children and babies who'd been abandoned on the streets. And for Coram, this was a real sense of not only a waste of life, but a waste of a resource. He kind of had been obviously working in the colonies. He was aware of the need for kind of young, healthy individuals to go out and settle the colonies and to make a success of them. So he set about campaigning 
for a home for these children. And Coran was an exceedingly tenacious man, which he needed to be because it took him 17 years of campaigning. And this was largely to do with the fact that an institution like a foundling hospital was seen as something that would encourage kind of more immortality rather than actually be a benefit to society. Founding hospitals had been, you know, quite common on the continent and had begun right through to the 14th, 15th century. But they came to this country very late. But eventually, after he kind of went around and walked the streets of London and went to visit various individuals who he thought might support his project, he succeeded in getting permission. And this is an object that we have on display in the museum. It's Thomas Coram's pocketbook. And he basically notes all the people that he went to see and kind of whether they gave him support. So this one starts with the Duke of Richmond. Um, this is the Royal Charter, and apologies for the image because it actually cuts off the Royal Seal at the very bottom, but you can come and see this at the museum. So this was signed by George II in 1739, and it kind of led to the creation of an institution that would help them. They um, held their first meeting of their governors in a pub near Somerset House. And then they took in the first children in Hatton Garden, so also not far from here, on the 25th of March in 1741. And Hatton Garden was a sort of temporary building that they rented in order to do this. The children came in as very young babies, and they would have their name changed, and so they would be baptised in the hospital. And the reason for changing their names is that the governors had promised the mothers that they would remain anonymous. This was to enable her to sort of start a new life, to start afresh, without having the possibility that her past life would come back to haunt her. Right from the very, very first day, when they only took in 30 children, there was huge pressure for places, and they had to divide systems of how they would choose which children were successful and which weren't. And this print um, represents one form of that, which was the balloting system. And so the women would come into the hospital and they would take a ball out of a cloth bag. And if they received a white ball, then their babies would then have a medical exam to make sure it was healthy. And if it passed the medical exam, the child would be accepted. If she picked out a black ball, she would then have to just take her child away and the child would not be accepted. There were also some red balls, which if the woman chose a red ball, that was, she was a just-in-case. And so if one of the white ball babies failed the medical, her child would then go through to the medical examination. Um, this isn't actually the origins of blackballing, which started in gentlemen's clubs, but it certainly takes on the same similarities. Um, this system lasted from 1742 right through to 1755, at which point the hospital was trying to respond to the huge demand for places, and it approached the government to, for a financial grant and the government agreed to give £10,000, but it came with a condition, and the condition was that they had to accept every single child admitted to the hospital. This led to a kind of onslaught of numbers of children, and from all around the country as well. There were individuals who were paid to transport children down to London, known as quorum men, and some of them appear to be a bit unscrupulous. If any of you have either read Jamila Gavin's book, Quorum Boy, or seen the National Theatre production, then she has taken an example of one of these transporters in that story. And in order to kind of cope with this huge onslaught, 
they actually introduced um, the idea of a basket. So the woman could come up and put the child in a basket at the gate and then ring for the porter and the porter would come and collect the child. Um, this slide is actually of the Paris Foundling Hospital, which actually had a turning wheel where the baby could be pushed round inside the building. Um, the London Hospital never had one of these. For general reception, they had to open up branch hospitals. And these hospitals ranged from Ackworth in Yorkshire through to um, a small kind of home in Barnet, just kind of north of London at the time, through to um, Chester, trying to think of the others. I should have written them all down. But there were six in total. And for the period that general reception lasted, which continued through to 1760, they had the insult of 15,000 children during this time period. The hospital was always very keen on record keeping, and this was partly because they promised the woman that she would always retain the right to come back and request to claim her child. The governors didn't always accept these claims. They really wanted to make sure that she was in a position to look after her child again. But in order to do so, they then had to keep accurate records and ensure that they could trace a child which they had changed the name of. And so each child would have a billet, and this is an example of one of these, it's the admission document. And so it would give the basic details of the child, the sex, their approximate age. It might have any identifying marks. And then there would also be this printed clothing list where they would write notes or mark what clothes and what objects the child had come in with. And it would also include the number that the hospital gave to each child. And can't actually read what this one is because it's a scribble, but it's a very, very early child because it's actually got Hatton Garden printed at the top. So it dates from that very early stage of 1740. It says one, two there, which is interesting. Obviously a kind of interesting thing. And then what would happen is that this billet would be kind of folded up and kept in the records. And so if the mother came back, she would say, I brought a male child on this date, and they would then go through the records until they found that. They also used another form to identify the child, which is the Foundling Hospital tokens, as they're known. And the mother was encouraged to bring an object with her that would act as a means to identify the child. And so this object token would be wrapped up in the billet. And so it would help when they then unwrap them that she would be able to find them. In the 19th century, the billets were actually opened up and some of the tokens that were inside them were put on display and they were bound in books, which is how they now are seen in the archive. And you can see on this particular one, it's got a piece of paper and also a piece of fabric. There are over 5,000 pieces of fabric in the Founding Hospital archive collection. And they range from embroidered pieces, cockades, simple ribbons, and also pieces cut from the child's clothing. And they frequently would cut a piece from the clothing. They would cut two pieces, and so the mother would be given a matching piece. They're also a kind of resource in terms of, for researchers, because they're unique. You think about 18th century textiles and what survives is very much kind of sort of royal outfits, aristocracy, etc. These are 5,000 pieces of working class fabric. There were also quite a lot of paper-based ones. And they would often note, as this one, which you probably can't see, is that the child has been christened. They would sometimes actually come from the parish where the mother was, and it would be signed by parish officials 
noting that you know the circumstances of the child's birth and the fact that the child had been christened. Some of them came, contained notes written by the mother or a proxy which would express her hopes for the future, the possibility of her child having a good life, the possibility of her being able to return to reclaim her child. Some of them are little poems, but some of the more moving ones are simply in quite poor handwriting, the child's name. This particular billet has three tokens on it, so it has the note, the yellow ribbon, and also a playing card. And playing cards are quite common within the collection of founding hospital tokens. And in the 18th century, the back of playing cards were kept blank, and people would often write their kind of contact details, as it were, and they became a sense of probably a precursor to the visiting card. But because they were blank, then notes could be written on the back of them, so they often acted as the paper-based note. In addition to the things that we've just seen actually pinned to the billet pages, there were also some hard objects, mainly coins, medals, some more everyday items. We have um, a squashed thimble, a pot of rouge, and a simple hazelnut shell in our collection. Um, these objects couldn't be pinned to the documents when they were bound in books, and so they were actually separated away from the billet that identified the child, which meant that a lot of these, we actually don't know which child they represent. But you can see um, there's about 300 of them in the museum's collection, and you can see over 200 of them on display in the museum. Um, the mothers were very much aware that they should bring an identifying object with them. And so this one has actually been engraved with its purpose. We think this is a token. Quite a few of them, in order to make them more identifiable, were personalised in some way. And so this one, it's possibly the initials of the mother, the EB, not entirely sure. They were also a way that mothers, in a sense, recorded as well as the notes, you know, kind of their emotional attachment to the child. Some of them also had like initials of the parents and the child's date of birth. Some of them were very much kind of handmade, like this rather lovely red heart being embroidered here. It's also um, got pinned to the back a scrap of paper which um, has the child's name on it, or rather the name that the mother had given the child as opposed to the, the child's new name. Another method of ensuring that the object would be identified is to kind of clip or cut the coin. Of course, coin clipping was actually um, against the law, but in this case, this penny has been clipped and not, and the actual billet that it came with described it as being a child came with a notched coin and so we've actually been able to match this particular token back up with the child. Okay. Um, as far as we know, John Hunter had no involvement with the hospital. However, I do have a story connecting his brother, William. And so from 1756, children could be left on a no-questions-asked basis if accompanied with £100. It's a huge amount of money. And from 1756, when it started, until 1801, when it finished, only 75 children came in this way. And if you're thinking about this includes that period of general reception where 15,000 children came in, get a sense of the scale. Um, William Hunter is believed to have told a story of being approached for help by a famous peer's daughter who had become pregnant. He first suggests that she goes to a friend's house to give birth in secret, 
but the woman tells him that her father won't let her out of his sight. I feel that's rather too late for that. Um, he then goes on to say that if she can give birth in total silence with the help of a couple of trusted servants, he will offer to deliver the child to the founding hospital with the £100 donation. The woman actually gives birth to twins, but Hunter accordingly does deliver them to the hospital. And so what's the evidence for this? Um, there's only one set of twins that, who were delivered with £100, and each of them came with a playing card noting the child's name, um, one George, one Joseph, and both had the name Hunter written on them. Um, this is the one for George. Several of the £100 children actually kept their own name. And this is the case for these two children. Um, sadly, Joseph died of a fever while at the hospital, but George is a bit luckier, and he survived to be apprenticed out to a coffee man called John Silk. So that's the Hunter connection. So... I spoke about the children being baptised when they came into the hospital. They were then sent out to nurse, um, wet nursing if the child was still young enough and required that. Um, this was due to economic reasons for the hospital. It said it was just more practical for them to send the children out to families where the women could look after them rather than have schools of women inside the hospital caring for the children. Um, they largely went out to agricultural communities, mainly in Kent, Essex and Surrey, but also Berkshire in the 18th century. And um, this woman looks rather serious and scary, but I suspect it was just because she was having to sit so still for the photograph. Um, the hospital had a group of inspectors who were responsible for recruiting, paying and checking up on the nurses. So after they had spent some time in a kind of family life, they then returned at the age of about five to a much more institutional life. And this is the um, London Hospital with a group of the children lined up outside. And you can hopefully just see um, the circle in the um, triangular roof. That's a clock, so just keep that in the back of your mind. And so their life at the hospital was much more regimented. The hours of the day were planned out. Um, boys and girls were kept very separate. The day would include services in the hospital chapel once a day and twice on Sundays. And these were the only times when the boys and girls would be present in the same space together, though they weren't allowed to mix. Um, the children were given a basic education it slightly changed over the time that we're talking about because there were various um, parliamentary acts that encouraged more education and the length of time that children should be in education and before they could go out to work. They also did get a bit of training via the work they did at the hospital, things like mending clothes, working in the gardens. And this was all designed to send them out into the world as useful citizens. And so they did that by apprenticing them out in their early teens. Most of the girls became domestic servants. Um, some apprentice indentures described the girl as being employed in household duties, which possibly may have meant a wider range of duties if the household ran their business from home, which was, of course, quite common at the time. Boys tended to have a wider range of named occupations, including gardeners, wig makers, hatters, butchers, and a variety of metal workers. But many of them were sent into the services. So the Navy in the 18th century and the Army by the 19th century. In the 19th century, the hospital instituted a boys' band, and many of these boys went into army bands and forged successful careers there. Uh, the founding hospital held a duty of care over the children until the age of 21, and so they would check up on them to make sure they were being well cared for and would at times actually remove the children from masters who had been mistreating them.
and this group of children in their uniforms gives you a little bit of a sense of the expected roles that they would go on to have. So the girls do very much look like domestic servants and the boys' uniform has quite a military feel to it. However, even though it was quite a regimented institutional life, there was some fun and so I thought I'd pop this photograph in and it's a sports day from 1899 and there is also a very short piece of fantastic old film footage that goes along with it. By the early 20th century, London had changed. It had grown enormously, and the Greenfield site that the hospital was built on had been developed, and also it had the industrial and railway area to the north at King's Cross. So in common with many other charitable institutions, the governors decided to move out of London and they sold the founding hospital estate. They went first of all to Red Hill in Surrey to a temporary building and then to this purpose-built site in Berkhamsted in Hertfordshire. The 20th century was a great time of change for the hospital, not just because of the move, but it had also become apparent that the institution had not really changed from its origins in the Georgian period. The pattern of care that I described earlier remained, so each child still had their name changed, they were fostered out, and they returned to the institutional life before being apprentices. However, some changes started to develop in the 1920s and 30s, with a few of the so-called brighter girls being given the opportunity to attend the Camden School for Girls. There were also wider employment opportunities available, and some girls were trained in secretarial skills and went on to work in offices. In addition, the hospital started a practice of sending the children out to camp every summer, which provided some freedom from their everyday restricted life. However, the main big change happened after World War II. The war itself was not a good time for the children at the institution. Many of the teachers were away at war, the practice of summer camps had ended, and the children were kept isolated within the grounds to the point that there was concern among the townspeople of Berkhamsted and the children were actually brought out to the fence so that the townspeople could actually see that the children were still there and were being looked after. During this time, there was a lot of kind of sort of the institutional issues of bullying that happened and because there weren't many able teachers, and quite often the care for the children remained among the older children, which then led to this. Um, following the war, the hospital began to end the pattern of institutional care, and they kept children in foster care. The site was sold to the local education authority, and the last children left in 1954. Um, this is now Ashland School and is a state secondary school. Okay. So that's some kind of the institutional practices. I want to talk a little bit more because some of the things we have in our collection are these extraordinary artworks. So this is William Hogarth's March of the Guards to Finchley. And Hogarth was central to the development of the Founding Hospital art collection. He saw the Founding Hospital as not only an opportunity for artists to give something to a charitable institution, but a way that would benefit local artists. He said that, you know, at this point um, there were no public art galleries, and so artists really couldn't promote their work in public spaces, but he felt like an institution like the Founding Hospital would enable, would become very much a public place and people would come. He was also responsible for doing the coat of arms for the hospital and had a hand in designing the children's uniforms. And he and his wife cared for some of the children during the fostering period. And 
the painting that I showed you earlier. So this is again William Hogarth, and it's the first work that entered the hospital collection, and it's a stunning portrait of Thomas Coram. And as I mentioned before, Coram was not a particularly kind of established, influential individual, but Hogarth gives him the stylistic methods to show him that way. So he paints it in the grand manner style with the pillar and the drapery and the um, vista out to sea. It also has the various objects associated with Coram. So the globe on the floor is turned to the Atlantic showing Coram's both his spheres of interest. And then he's holding in his hand the seal for the Royal Charter, which is on the desk next to him. And this is the painter Alan Ramsey's response to Hogarth's portrait. The two artists were quite rivals. And this is um, Dr. Richard Mead. So he's our key medical figure at the Foundling Hospital. And he was an early governor and gave advice on the care of the children, you know, the sort of standards that they should think about. The hospital was extremely innovative when it came to the health care of the children. So, for example, unusually the children were not fed beer, probably largely to do with the fact the hospital actually had a source of safe water on its grounds. But there were also things like the idea that the children shouldn't be kept in tight swaddling. And he, Dr Mead, promoted the idea of um, inoculation against smallpox as a widespread practice throughout the hospital. And in fact, they inoculated using the pre-Jenner vaccine and then went on to use the Jenner one. And um, you can see from this portrait that um, Richard Mead is a rather different individual to Thomas Coram. And then the hospital began to build its collection through the donations of other works by artists. And it very much became somewhere that artists felt they had to give a work to in order to be seen as part of the art scene at the time. And so this is our Reynolds painting. It's not a terribly good Reynolds, I will confess. But, you know, if you've got a Reynolds in your collection, you don't really complain about that. Um, the collection also included the work of Benjamin West, who was the second president of the Royal Academy, and his work um, replaced the first altarpiece that had been done by an artist called Andrea Casali. And this kind of growth of the artwork in the collection led to the artists becoming artist governors. So when they donated a piece of work, they would then be appointed a governor. And every year they would have an annual dinner. And it was discussions at these dinners that led to them needing a society of their own. So the Society of Artists grew out of the artists meeting at the founding hospital. And that eventually led to the Royal Academy. It wasn't just painters. It was also sculptors. So this is... Um, a relief by Risebrack, and he's the second artist who was made a governor after William Hogarth. Um, this rather nice, sort of slightly Dutch-inspired round painting is by a very young artist, the young Thomas Gainsborough. And I think it was designed for a particular room, which I'll show you an image in the moment, where the artists were actually invited to donate a work for the design of this room. And I think it gives you a sense of Gainsborough's status and standing that even at the age of 21, he was considered that he should be invited to contribute. And this is the room. You can't actually quite see the Gainsborough in this image. It's just to the right of the fireplace, which is where the rise brack is. Um, this was very much designed as a place for the hospitals VIPs to come when they visited. It's also where the governors held their meetings. And the artists saw it as a place where they could really promote the work of British artists and try and show what they could do. And in this room, um, artists included Francis Heyman, Joseph Highmore, as well as Hogarth, Richard Wilson, and the Risebrack and the Gainsborough work. 
It also included the work of craftsmen, which included this fantastic Rococo ceiling, which was created by William Wilton, who's the father of the sculptor, Joseph Wilton. And along with craftsmen like Wilton, other craftsmen got involved. So um, the cartouche, which is on your left, <laughs> is, um, were commissioned by Edward Eads. And, and with their religious text, they were incorporated into the chapel design. Um, the clock was made by the famous clockmaker, John Ellicott. And it's one of two that we have in our collection. Um, Ellicott also advised the hospital on that very large clock that I showed you in the front of the building. The final key creative figure involved was the composer George Friedrich Handel. And um, the sculptor, the bust is in our collection of Handel here. Um, he approached the governors and offered a benefit performance and it was phenomenally successful that he actually needed to repeat it the following week because they had a slight issue with people who didn't have tickets coming in. Handel went on to um, write the Foundling Hospital anthem and the score that you can see on the slide is his conducting score for the anthem. So it's got annotations in his hand there. Handel then went on to give a performance every single year for the benefit of the hospital right through to when he died. And it was during the second year's performance that he played Messiah at the Foundling Hospital. And Messiah had first been performed in Dublin, where it had been fairly successful and well-received. However, when Handel brought it to London, it didn't go down so well. And this is probably because it includes religious texts, but it was being performed in very secular settings, such as concert halls, theatres, etc. And so it's really only when Handel brings it to the chapel of the Foundling Hospital for the benefit of a charitable organisation that it starts to take off and has become the sort of well-known love piece that we all associate with benefit performances. <coughs> Handel also decides to continue to help the hospital and in his will he instructs that a copy of all the parts, so the musicians and the singers' parts, of Messiah is copied out and delivered to the founding hospital. And this enables the hospital to go on continuing to give performances after his death. Okay. Um, the museum today continues the tradition of working with artists who are engaged in social issues. And every two years, we invite free creative individuals to become a fellow at the museum. So there's a quorum, a Handel, and a Hogarth fellow. And um, the piece on your left is Grayson Perry, who is one of our fellows. And the piece on the right is by the artist David Shrigley, which he contributed to an exhibition that we had and it's his take on the token that I showed you earlier. And so we continue to do a program of working with contemporary artists, and our summer show will be an exhibition featuring around 60 contemporary artists, and it's being um, curated by Cornelia Parker, and it's around the idea of found. So um, artists are either contributing a piece that speaks to that theme or they can contribute a found object. Um, at the moment, our exhibition is called Drawing on Childhood, which features um, illustrations of fictional characters who were foundlings, orphaned, fostered, adopted, etc. And it starts with Tom Jones and goes right through to Harry Potter. And then um, Hayley mentioned that I should let you know what our opening hours are, just to finish off. So we are open six days a week from Tuesday through to Sunday, and it's um, 10 until 5, Tuesday to Saturday, and 11 till 5 on Sunday. And I do hope that if you haven't visited the museum, that you will take the opportunity to come and see us.
question. Um, Hayley mentioned the oral history project. So incorporated within those individuals, we actually interviewed 76 former pupils, which is the term that um, we tend to use about with individuals who are still alive. Because as you can imagine, the term foundling, which comes with often the stigma of illegitimacy, can be quite a difficult term for individuals. Some of them don't mind it. Some of them quite enjoy using it. And so we interviewed those people. We suspect there's probably about four to 500 people still alive. And the oldest person is about 98. But um, there have been quite a few of them who actually made it over the 100-year mark. So they're obviously quite a long-lived. I think, you know, the kind of harsh beginning in life made them hardy, kept going. And so in 1948, so just while the institution was changing, they did decide to create an organisation, so a sort of alumni group, as it were, which is called the Old Quorum Association. And they come back and they meet up three times a year at the museum where it's a great time for when they all come and have a, a gossip and you learn so much about what happened to them at school. But it's definitely, you know, for quite a lot of them, the connections they made while at the institution and their common sort of history that binds them together has very, been very important to them and for many is part of their extended family. I think it depends what time period you're talking about. So during the 18th century, um, where largely the alternative would be the workhouse, the 18th century, I mean, I think it's something like 75% of children died generally before they reached the age of five, I think it's five, and then in the workhouse, that rises to 90% before their first birthday. So I think when you're talking about that time period, you know, clearly, and also because they were given an apprenticeship that the hospital arranged, they were then given the opportunity to support themselves. So I think I would argue that for the 18th and probably into the 19th century, you know, it was very much a clear benefit in terms of survival and kind of their economic well-being. Obviously, they tended to miss out on the kind of emotional care that families give to their children. I think during the 20th century, as society was changing and the hospital was really struggling to keep up with that, a lot of the former pupils feel quite bitter in a sense about the fact that they weren't given the sort of care that other individuals were. And certainly for the girls who weren't given the opportunities for other trades, I think, you know, things were kind of that idea of being a domestic servant at the time when that was becoming an occupation that less and less women were going into. It's probably a different one. A lot of them remain very happy, though, with their kind of background and what they were given. So I think it depends on the person as well. Okay, um, I think there was... Yep, <laughs> go for it. Yep. In the early 18th century, for example, what sort of burial did they have? 
Um, they were buried at um, two burial grounds that were related to parish churches nearby. As a general rule, the children were not buried on site at the founding hospital. Um, one thing is to note, though, that the huge majority of children who did die were actually in foster care because they were at their most vulnerable years, a from birth through to when they were five and returned to the hospital. And so they would be buried locally in the parish churches and the hospital would pay for the burial. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, during, obviously, the period of general reception where they had to take all the children, then, in a sense, the onus of the financial care was on the Foundling Hospital. And certainly, kind of before that period and afterwards, the mothers would actually be coming in person to apply. And by the beginning of the 19th century, the system had become very formalised and she would actually need to fill in a printed form which gave the details of, you know, kind of her circumstances and what had happened to her. And this is when the hospital was kind of tightening up its admission criteria, so it needed some way of being able to judge between the different cases. But, I mean, I've not heard... I mean, the institution was kind of financially trying to support itself through kind of donations. And as far as I'm aware, they tended not to take, you know, if someone didn't fit the criteria, they would then actually be sent to the workhouse. Um, it was a small house of which we are still not 100% certain of its actual site. And I think it's actually in, that's right, is it Barnet Madden? I think um, it was a home that cared for, I think, only about 30 children. And it was run by a local woman called um, Mrs. Prudence West, who was... I think, reasonably wealthy and a kind of landowner, and she had sourced this house that would care for the children there. Um, the Barnet Hospital only actually lasted a few years during the period of general reception. But, yeah, I'm afraid its location is still not... There's um, somebody who's a volunteer at the museum who's a local resident in Barnet who has taken it upon herself to try and find out, and she thinks she's got very close. Yeah. Gentlemen, uh, person at the back. Um, it seems to have been very rare, so this idea about um, mothers being able to reclaim their child... In most cases, it seemed like she was never actually in the position to do so. And in some cases, the hospital did not feel that she, her circumstances had changed to the point where it was suitable for her to actually take back the care. And in some cases, so sadly, they would go through this thing where she would make a claim and the hospital would check her out. And then they would go to the billets and they would open them up find the child's billet, find the number, and then they would discover that, sadly, the child had actually died, which must have been completely, you know, distressing and heart-wrenching for the poor mother having gone through all of that. But, I mean, it's in very... I mean, it changes slightly over the period, but, I mean, you know, less than 1%. Question from the side.
and Skip gave their baby to one of the family hospitals and then looked after them. Okay, not that we are aware of, and had the hospital discovered that was the case, they probably would have actually fired the woman employing. Um, there is a slight influence of um, the Jacqueline Wilson Hetty Fever series of books, which the audience may just be a little too young for, <laughs> but um, basically Jacqueline Wilson was another of our fellows and she wrote a book and now a series of books about a Victorian foundling. And Hetty's birth mother actually gets a job at the foundling hospital so that she could meet Hetty. Um, in reality, the hospital would not have allowed that to have happened should they known. And also, it would have been incredibly difficult for the mother to really have identified her child among the many hundred. Um, I think it was in since the focus on what the founding hospital was about. So largely on the continent, they were being run by the Catholic Church. And so there was this kind of concept of, I think, the kind of redemption of the mother through this. Whereas, I mean, the London hospital also had that sense of allowing the mother to kind of reclaim and start afresh. But I think... Just a different focus, and I think, you know, for the Catholic Church, it was less of an issue, perhaps, and that's in the idea that a society here in this country felt that it would encourage more illegitimate children, which was the, the battle, the great battle that Coram had to try and convince people. But, yeah, I don't think it's entirely kind of clear, but it's, you know, they were different. I mean, the first one started in Italy, and so they seem to have begun in very much Catholic countries. And, I mean, they spread right around the world. So there's actually there's some in South America. And, you know, we're all trying to put our hand up for that research trip. Thank you. Right, well, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to thank Alison very much for coming over and giving us this fascinating insight into a, a really amazing, not only amazing collection, but an amazing institution with such a wonderful history. I was lucky enough to see the Tokens exhibition a few years ago, and it's not often you actually see an exhibition that leaves you with a lump in your throat. So I would absolutely commend this collection to anyone who has the time to do the very short walk from here to Brunswick Square. Alison, thank you very much indeed. If you have enjoyed this lunchtime talk, um, please do come to our next lunchtime talk. A mention was made of Jenna and pre-Jenna vaccinations, and our next lunchtime talk is on the 17th of May, and we'll look at the life and work of Edward Jenner as part of our forthcoming vaccination exhibition. So we hope to see you again. On your chairs are both museum mile maps, so you may follow up, and also our usual evaluation forms. We know you've all filled them in before, but we love your opinions, so please do complete them again. Thank you for coming.